This is the word of the Lord. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but, by, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. As we pause for a moment and reflect on Scripture, let's stand and sing before the throne of God above.
please be seated. So, if you were asked to give a paper on a rose to a room full of flower enthusiasts, where would you even start? I think the task would be a little more daunting than you might at first realize. I mean, this isn't some obscure plant. You need to go research and find out hidden medicinal value to prove its worth. This isn't some flower that grows up in the hills of some mountain you've never heard of that you're going to have to work really hard to convince people is beautiful and they should have a lot around. I mean, the rose is iconic. It's a symbol of love. What was it? Four days ago. Five, four days ago. I don't celebrate Valentine's Day. Four days ago. Some of you might have given or received roses as a symbol of love. They show up in Shakespearean poetry, in sonnets, all over the place. You can't go anywhere without running in to a rose. My guess is that few people would start at the obvious. Well, the rose is a flower, and therefore it's a plant. It needs sunshine and soil and water, and if you get those things right, you might just wind up with a rose. It's usually red at the top and green on the bottom. It's used for perfume. You're going to lose your audience pretty quick if that's where you decide you're going to start in a room like that. So you've got other options. You can talk about a flower and a field of flowers. Talk about how the beauty of the one is magnified by the beauty of the many. How awesome it is to see this thing so beautiful surrounded in a field with all these other individual beautiful flowers. And how the smell almost knocks you over as, you, as it becomes intense in such a crowd. But the one flower right up close is just as beautiful. So you pluck that one flower. You try really hard to find some new expression of the rose. So you start to peel the petals apart. You start to write down what you notice. You study real hard. You read obscure journals obscure books. You look down the center of it and you see how all the petals fold into one another and how beautiful it is. And you look down the stem and you find new ways to describe it. And as you turn the rose over and over and over in your hands, eventually there's a sharp pain starting in your finger, working its way down to your elbow. Because as you've been describing this beauty of this flower, you forgot about the thorns. And as you turned it, as you searched it, it pricked you and drew blood. And that's a little what dealing with this text has felt like. It feels a bit, I mean, this is iconic, right? The picture of Jesus as shepherd, if I were a betting man, and I assure you I am not, I would guess that in the top five, ten depictions we have of Jesus, him as shepherd shows up. Memory verses are pulled from this passage of John 10. We love this, this passage of Scripture. It's, it's iconic, the images and themes we find in it. So we could examine all of its metaphors, draw modern-day parallels. About a month ago, I was at the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland, and I walked all 162 painful steps of the shepherd's staircase. And when I got to the top, I read the plaque, about how hundreds of years ago, shepherds who grazed this area 
without the benefit of the stairs, would carry their sheep one by one up this steep cliff face. We could talk about how you drive around Scotland and you see sheep everywhere. And the way shepherds distinguish between sheep here is to paint on them, to tell whose sheep is whose. I mean, that is the obvious start. Jesus is our shepherd. This notion is beautiful and this notion is common. And when I say it's common, I don't mean vulgar. I mean, it's everywhere. We love this image. We've spent six weeks talking about God as our shepherd. We've seen in the past few weeks, Jesus, take that role. God incarnate walking amongst us as our shepherd. There's little in this passage I think I could tell most of you that you haven't heard before. If you go to the Middle East today, you can walk up, you'll watch a shepherd walk up to a sheep pen and call a sheep by name, one by one, still. And sheep know the voice of their shepherd. They can distinguish it. And as he calls each sheep by name, each individual sheep comes right out of the gate. Most of you have heard that several times. Some of you know a shepherd's life. It wasn't a glamorous life. It was a life given up to be spent in the fields. And at night, he wouldn't retreat indoors to a home. He would lay across the sheep gate to protect his sheep from predators, to protect his sheep from thieves. You've heard all this before. Jesus, our shepherd, calling us one by one, name by name, guarding us, protecting us from thieves, protecting us from wolves. The idea is common, but it's beautiful. And Jesus goes a step farther in this passage, however. He's not just any shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And this good shepherd is strikingly different than any other shepherd we have ever seen in Scripture. He's great David's greater son because he is almost exactly the opposite of David. David, starting out in this humble life, meager, protecting his flock, being elevated to the status of king and king of the entirety of Israel. And here you have Jesus, God the Son. On a throne, eternal. Glory beyond what we can possibly fathom. And he steps out of that to walk amongst us as a human being. Not elevated, but emptying himself. And again, unlike David, who convinces Saul to let him go to battle because he's ripped lions to shreds with his bare hands. And he's torn bears apart with his slingshot that come after his sheep. Jesus says he's the good shepherd for precisely another reason. You might remember a little over a month ago when David Moffat described us the tools of a shepherd. The rod in one hand to beat away any predators that come after the flock. The staff in the other that he can pick the sheep up off of a cliff or he can bind them in and keep them close when times get hard. But the picture we have here is very different. Use your imaginations for a second. Pretend you are, in fact, a sheep. Let's take Jesus really literal for a second. You're a sheep, and you're following your shepherd through a valley. Everything's going well. He really is a good shepherd. He provides for you. He cares for you. He loves you. And then you hear a howl off in the distance. You know exactly what it is. It's a wolf. But one wolf your shepherd can handle, so you don't freak out about it. 
Then you hear another howl. And then another howl. And then another howl. And as you look up at the tops of this ridge in this valley, you see scores of wolves taking off down in the distance, announcing the buffet that's on its way. And as they come to a point where they can invade the valley, the only thing standing between you and them is your shepherd. But there are too many wolves. You've seen them beat off one, two, three at a time, maybe. But this is hundreds, thousands of wolves. There's no way our shepherd can defend us. So the shepherd takes a few steps out. And he doesn't raise his rod or his staff in a battle stance. Instead, he lays both of them down at his feet. And he stands there. And as the wolves charge, he allows himself to be eaten. Allows himself to be devoured. Now, it's a painful, it's an agonizing sight as you watch this shepherd who has loved you, who has cared for you, ripped to pieces by wolves. And yet, another revelation comes to mind. There are too many wolves. He's not going to last. The first few maybe will be satisfied, but the rest, when there's nothing left of my shepherd, are going to turn on me. But something remarkable happens. A wolf eats and is satisfied and walks away. And another wolf, and another wolf, and another wolf, until all the wolves have eaten all they can have and walk away. You're relieved at first. There are no wolves left. But then another dreadful reality. Those wolves are going to be hungry again. Might be hours, might be days. But we don't have a shepherd anymore, and these wolves are coming back. So imagine the joy when your shepherd, whom you've just seen torn apart, stands back up. Maybe you can't believe your eyes at first, but then you hear it. Johnny, Caleb, Todd, Angus, Jack, Craig, Andrew, Heather, Harry. It's your shepherd's voice calling your name. The impossible has happened. The shepherd is back. The good shepherd can lay his life down, but the good shepherd brings it back. We know all this. We know all of this. Jesus loves us. He cares for us. He gave himself for us. And he came back from the grave, proving his victory and offering us new life. It's beautiful. But it's common. So let's take a step back. This text does not appear in a vacuum. Let's ask ourselves, what's happened right before this? Some of you might be familiar with the story of John chapter 9. Jesus is coming out of the temple, having just aggravated the Pharisees, as he's so good at. As a matter of fact, he's called himself I Am. He's applied the proper name of God to himself, blasphemy. So as he's leaving the temple... He sees a blind man. And the disciples, being very capable theologians, ask a really good question. See, they observe this blind guy. He's a child of Israel. He's created in the image of God. God is all good. God is all powerful. So it must have been sin that this guy is blind, right? He must have done something or his parents must have done something because a loving God wouldn't allow one of his children to suffer like that. So they put the question to Jesus. Jesus? 
Why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or was it the sin of his parents? And again, Jesus taking every opportunity as a teaching opportunity, turns to his disciples and says, it wasn't either of those things. This man has been chosen to be a vessel of God's glory and God's power. So he does something very bizarre, something kind of gross. He spits in the dirt, he makes mud, and he puts it on the blind man's eyes. And then he says, go and wash in a pool called sin. The blind man does it. He wanders away, he washes his eyes, and he comes back and he can see. And then there's a bit of an uproar. People start having fun conversations. Jane, do you think that, is that the guy we've known since he was a kid? Sure looks like him, David. It can't be. The guy we knew was born blind. How is that so? I don't know. What do I look like, a doctor? So they go closer. They want to explore what exactly has happened. And they don't like his story. This guy, Jesus, spat on the ground, anointed my eyes, and made me see. So they drag him before the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are still mad because Jesus has just called himself God. They, get him to, they try to get him to renounce. Who is this? This man can't be from God. He blasphemes. He heals on the Sabbath. He breaks all the laws. They don't like the blind man's answer, so they call his parents up. Is this your son? Yes, it is. Has he been blind since birth? Yes, he has. What happened to him? Ask him yourself. He's of age. In other words... We want no part of this controversy, even if it costs his son. So they, draw, they drag the blind man, formerly blind, now seeing, back up. Give glory to God. Stop giving glory to this sinner, this lawbreaker. And then some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, right? Whether this man's a sinner or not, I don't know. All I know is I once was blind, and now I can see. And the Pharisees do what his parents were fearing. They cut him off from temple worship. He's excluded from life as a child of Israel. And what's really sad is he's been kicked out of the temple his entire life because he's been blind. That's why Jesus saw him on his way out of the temple. And now this hope, this hope of being restored to God's people, being able to worship at the temple is taken away as fast as it came. There he is wandering the streets, dejected. And he hears a voice. Excuse me, sir, do you believe in the Son of Man? <laughs> Who is he? I would love to believe in the Son of Man. I, that am speaking to you, am he. And there's this joyous moment before the same Pharisees who have caused all this hubbub come back. Can you imagine the fear of this guy? Standing there, the people who have just thrown him out of the temple, coming upon the person they've called a blasphemer, a sinner. And what does Jesus do? He puts himself in the way. You Pharisees, you are the ones who are really blind. Very truly, I tell you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter by the sheeple. And he launches into this parable. And then the beauty of the rose becomes even clearer. When Jesus tells a story, it's not an abstract principle. When he's telling the Pharisees about his sheep, he's got him right here. This man, this one, is my sheep. These things we take as abstract are so personal that each one of us could be standing there in that moment as Christ 
turns and defends us to our accusers. This one, this is my sheep. He knew my voice. He followed me. And I will lay my life down for this one sheep. Like any good story, it has a good protagonist, but has to have a good antagonist too. And Jesus names some really good ones in this text. First, the thief and the robber. So often when we go to John 10.10, we're quick to identify Satan in that passage, right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But in verse 1, Jesus tells us who the thief is. It's anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate. So while sure, we can apply John 10.10 to Satan, it's not necessarily who Jesus has in mind at this moment. The people he has in mind are the Pharisees. These Pharisees who just tried to steal his sheep, who put him on trial, who threatened to cast him out of the temple, who did indeed cast him out of the temple, but couldn't dissuade him because he knew his shepherd's voice. And if we know the shepherd's voice, we are unable to be stolen. We recognize counterfeits. And you Pharisees, you wanted to kill him. You wanted to place this yoke, this burden of your own understanding of the law upon him that would completely crush him, that would completely wipe him out. But I have come to give this man life and life to the full. You can't steal him. And then comes the first thorn, the first prick of the finger. When we start asking ourselves, in what ways have we ever been thieves? In what ways have we offered someone something short of Jesus Christ himself? Have I ever boiled Christianity down to moralism? Made it about doing something? If you want to be a Christian, check off these boxes. You're in. Have I stopped short of offering the crucified Christ a death, an atonement, a resurrection? And jumped straight to the ethical implications? Have I ever offered a political agenda rather than Jesus Christ? Have I ever thought, if I can't get you to agree with me, maybe I can impose morality on you in some other way? And in so doing, engage in hateful rhetoric, belittle people, dehumanize them because they disagree with me? In my zealous passion for Jesus and his holiness, have I ever taken the implications of the gospel and outrun Jesus himself? Have I ever been guilty of the opposite? Have I ever divorced the implications of the gospel from Jesus' teaching on holiness? Have I ever stopped short at Jesus loves you and Jesus accepts you who you are? Saying no longer do you stand condemned. Stopping just short of Jesus' words, now go and sin no more. Have I ever fallen on either of these two sides and offered something short of Jesus Christ himself? Have I ever been the thief that tries to take a sheep by another way? And as we examine these characters, we come across the second thorn. If Christ is not just describing some random symbol of hired hands, but he's actually describing what's just happened, who are the only people that fit the bill? It becomes very obvious that it's this man's parents. This man's parents who had an opportunity to stand up for their son against the Pharisees. But who instead 
decided to abandon their son for fear that they might be thrown out of the temple. Imagine the dejection. These people who had walked with him, who had cared for him, who had suffered shame, probably heard slanderous whispers. What do you think they did for their son to be born blind? Here he is, completely abandoned. And I ask myself, have I ever been a wolf? Have I ever watched as a brother or sister comes under attack, is struggling, is suffering from something? And I know very well I could enter, I could intervene, but it's going to cost me something. And counting the cost just too high, I leave them high and dry. I am not the good shepherd. I cannot be the good shepherd. And finally, the last thorn. And it doesn't come from a juxtaposition of characters. It doesn't come from the words of Jesus in red, but it's kind of in bold between the lines. Screaming at me from my own experience. Because I think all of us, and myself included, can affirm this passage. I know my shepherd's voice. He's called me by name. I've been to the point where I've seen him sacrifice himself for my sake. And I've experienced the power of his resurrection. I've heard his voice call my name time and time again. So what about all those times when I don't hear him? What about all those times when strain and try, I don't hear the voice of God. I don't hear my shepherd. And I'm not talking about times of wandering, seasons of sin, when I put fleshly desires over the delights of Jesus. I mean, times of hunger and times of want, times of desperation, times when I open the scripture, hoping that I find that promised living water Jesus offers, but finding only a desert. Times when I'm pouring my guts out in prayer, but the words fall right off my lips and land with a thud on the floor. And I'm straining and I'm trying and I'm working and I just can't hear it. Where is my good shepherd? He says he loves us. He says he'll never forsake us even to the ends of the earth. He is the good shepherd, but sometimes I just don't hear him. This question isn't absent from scripture. Shows up in the Psalms all the time. Outcries of God, why have you forsaken? Why have you abandoned? And there are never any answers in those Psalms. Where is he? Where is he when the wolves are descending again? Where is he when the thieves are jumping the gate and grabbing sheep by the arm? I don't know. Trite answers don't help. Anything you've read on a Christian greeting card does not answer the question, where is he? Maybe you can find a better answer, but I do take comfort in this. When I'm feeling lost, and the shepherd seems silent, and I as a sheep bleat, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can remember the voice of my shepherd, who cried that from the cross, who went before me, who gave himself for the wolves. And even if I don't hear him in the moment, I remember that voice. I can hear it resounding in my head. So that even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I can fear no evil. Because that valley really is just a valley of shadow. There's no actual death there. Because even if my heart stops beating, the life, the life that belongs to my Savior, whom I saw come again from the dead, is the same life promised to me. Death has no victory here. It's not final. I'm coming back because my shepherd knows my name. Because my shepherd has laid his life down on the cross. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you don't leave us as orphans, as wandering sheep, struggling and searching and trying to find you. That you have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. Not a shepherd that has to stand and fight. But a shepherd whose victory comes through death. Even death on a cross. A death we all should have died. But he died in our place. Taking the wolves of sin. The wolves of Satan. Every wolf that has a demand upon our life. He offered himself to them. In our place. And for our sake. But he didn't stay in the grave. He rose again. And in rising he calls us each by name. Individually. Lord he doesn't stand back and yell for the herd. He comes right up to the pen. Knowing each one of us by name. Calling us out. Calling us to follow him. So as we turn to a time of reflection, a time of worship, as we sing about the wonderful cross. Let us remember, the cross is wonderful for us because it was horrific for you. And we never have to go to it. We ask this in your son's name.